Welcome to Everyday Motherhood, the podcast that inspires you to pause, connect, and play more every single day. The podcast that's focused on you, the mom, to help you fill up your cup and rediscover the joy and love in your everyday life. We can't parent alone, and parenting is too serious to be serious all the time. Thanks for being here. My name is Christy Thomas. I am the founder and developer of PlayForLifeMoms.com. Let's jump in. I am so excited today to welcome Stacy Steinberg. And she is a lawyer and she's also an author of a brand new book called Growing Up Shared. And it comes out on August 4th. Welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I found you because you often write articles for the Washington Post about growing up shared, growing up on with parents sharing too much about their kids or how to figure out this whole digital world outline. And it's so fascinating to me because there's no map for this. There's no rules. Um, so I have always loved to take pictures. I was the person at sleepaway camp when we did not have digital cameras who was taking pictures and then trying to figure out a way to edit them. You know, back in 2003, I think I got my first digital camera and I love to make pictures black and white and crop them and whatever. So when I became a mom, I instantly went to photographing the kids and, you know, my oldest is going into ninth grade now. So there was okay. no Facebook at that point, mm -hmm. but I would take pictures every month and I would send them to family. Um, and by the time my second child was born in 2011, we had Facebook and yep. um, I shared a lot, um, took a lot of pictures and started to love photography. So my 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 real job is that I'm a law professor. I teach uh, I'm a legal skills professor at the University of Florida, Levin College of Law, where I supervise the juvenile law clinic and we represent oh, wow. kids that are in foster care. 99% um, of our clients are kids that are in foster care. Um, many of whom um, don't have a forever family. So we're helping mm -hmm. them either transition into adulthood or hopefully finding an adoptive home. Um, and in my time away from work, I started to become a photographer. And I know it sounds really crazy for like a lawyer to jump ship and become a photographer, but I'm a creative person. And my favorite watercolor artist is an OBGYN. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you get it. So, like, yeah. I, I, I was... Um, so I love to take pictures. I decided I wanted to get a nice camera. Um, some friends were like, hey, if you take pictures of my kid, I'll you know, pay you to do it. So the next thing I knew, I had a thriving photography business on top of being a law professor. Um, wow. and, um, and I was sharing my way through motherhood and I was helping other parents share their stories. Um, and another kind of strange twist to my story is um, so maybe not strange, but before I was a law professor, I was a child abuse prosecutor. And, um, oh, wow. and um, so I was really used to seeing families in really difficult times of, of trauma and struggle. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that despite the pain that those families were in, there were these, there were these moments of joy that was happening behind the scenes, no matter how difficult a child's life was. And mm -hmm. so kind of one thing led to the other and some friends of mine who were pediatricians at a local hospital um, encouraged me to take some pictures for kids who were undergoing treatment for cancer. Um, and so I started like a free photography service where I would take pictures for any families who wanted them at our local hospital. 
And it was incredible. And I was able to really get to know some amazing families. And those families also shared the pictures and I helped them share them too. Um, and so as a law professor, someone who focuses on kids' rights and who also shares, I, I started to question in 2015 if there was a conflict between what I was doing as a mom and a photographer and what I was learning and what I was teaching and what I knew about children's rights to privacy. Um, and so at the time I was, uh, I was blogging and I, um, I was really fortunate in that I had somewhat of a platform and I wrote a really short essay for the Washington post kind of exploring this intersection and, um, kids rights to privacy. Um, and I was, um, it, it went out, I thought it was going to be the last thing I wrote because it was just really powerful and I was proud of it. You know, you write things that you're not so proud of and then things that you are. And that was something I was really proud of and I was like ready to rest. And um, I, uh, we had recently uh, gotten a new dean at my law school and she read it and she's also a children's rights scholar. And she encouraged me not to put it down, but to keep digging, to dig a little bit deeper. And, um, and she just kind of lit up, lit an idea in my head. And so I started to research. I'd never written an academic paper before. I was a litigator. My legal skills was, were really on display in the courtroom, not in the document. Um, But she mentored me and a number of other professors at the university mentored me. And so I wrote the first academic legal paper um, that explored the intersection of a child's right to privacy and a parent's right to share. and, and it was great. And kind of the rest was history. I mean, I didn't stop when I wrote that paper. Um, I wrote something with a pediatrician about how we could help doctors kind of educate parents about it. Mm-hmm. Because I think um, when I set off with this research, I think I was really scared that I would walk away never sharing again and resenting everything I had shared. But that's not mm-hmm. what happened. Um, I walked- that's really good news yeah. because I'm sitting here like, okay, <laughs> no, that's not what happened. That's what I thought was going to happen. But what happened is six years later, I've walked away realizing and seeing that sharing our st- stories is very powerful, that there's mm-hmm. a lot of power that comes when we're vulnerable and that when we reach out and connect with other people and that while there are risks involved with sharing, it's really, there are so many benefits too. And so it's not about not sharing altogether. It's about bringing our kids into the conversation and really thinking about it and modeling the becoming or modeling the the people that we want our kids to be online. You know, I, I want my I want my kids. I don't mind if my kids are on social media. I think there's a lot of great reasons why they would. But mm-hmm. I want my son to ask permission before he shares a picture of somebody else. And the best way I'm going to teach him to do that is by asking him if he's okay with me sharing his picture. Um, and so my, my research really, um, it explored the ups and the downs and the why we should and why we shouldn't. And I've walked away realizing that there is so much power in a parent's voice and mm-hmm. that the best thing that we can do is learn what the big risks are, kind of take away the things that are just making people scared that aren't really risks and, um, and sharing in a safer way. And so... So now my book's coming out and that's what it's about. I am so excited for this book to launch in the world. I can't wait to give it to my brother and their new baby. He's only three months old. So they have a whole different perspective because the iPhone's been out for 13 years now and it's totally changed everything. And social media has totally changed everything. 
And I felt like I tripped along a lot with posting things and then feeling like I should delete things. And now that I have a 13-year-old, 12-year-old, and 7-year-old, now it's a lot about consent and asking that I don't think I thought about those things before when they were so little. That's exactly what it is. You know, it's about asking first and it's about modeling um, good social media habits and being good digital citizens so that our kids can grow up to do the same. Um, You you became a mom right around the time Facebook came up, right? Uh And so your kids are the first generation to grow up shared, but you're also the first generation to raise kids alongside social media. And so, right. so the first thing I would say is we have to cut ourselves some slack. There was no rule book to help us figure out how to do this, right? Like in so many other aspects yeah. of parenting, we, we watched our parents do a good job or, or mess up. You know, we, we had experiences of like being popular in the cafeteria or fe- feeling left out at a high school dance. We don't have those experiences to guide us. So we're really in our uncharted territory. Um, and so it's exciting um, but it's also pretty nerve wracking. I mean, imagine the parents who were like the first ones to raise kids alongside television, right? Right. Or books. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Like we see the memes about how newspapers or books are going to wreck the world. Um, and the old newspaper yeah. headlines. And, and I'm looking at these old headlines with my oldest as we're on Instagram together, sending memes back and forth as a love language. And I'm like, okay. What do we do here? I don't know this world and I don't know if I know all the real risks and what I should be trying to protect from. Right. As a military spouse, I know different risks than maybe the rest of the nation knows. Like I've sat through briefs with Navy NCIS with um, talking about terrorists and being personal security and operational security for for different Navy platforms that that's a really alarming thing to sit through. Um, But I don't know if I know all the risks for my kids in a smaller scale. Right. Well, do you want me to tell you some of them? Yeah, I would love to. Like, what should I be aware of that I don't know? Okay. So the first thing that you should be aware of is don't worry. You can keep sharing. That's the first thing I will tell you. Okay. So don't (laughs) panic. Um, The second thing I will tell you, though, is that there are some real tangible things that you have to be aware of. Um, Barclays is a big banking institution. I believe it's the UK. They had put out a survey that showed that a very large number of our kids are are at risk of becoming victims of identity theft because of the information that we are putting out about them now. That makes total sense. When you think about like your your passwords on things, you know, mother's maiden name. It's really easy to get a mother's maiden name now, (laughs) date of birth, really easy to find. Um, So so there are a lot of things that we know, concrete things that we know that we are putting out into the world that could be Mm -hmm. easy game for uh, digital theft. Um, There's also things that we don't know that we're putting out into the world that could become game in ways that Uh we haven't thought of. Um, When you think of DNA, for example, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, we had no idea that you were going to be able to take a little bit of blood and access all of this information about a person, right? And and there's some some really fascinating, um, there's been some great writing, there's been some great scholars who are really talking about that. Like, you know, there are family secrets that people didn't, you know, Danny Shapiro has a whole podcast about it, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I love the podcast. So, 
we don't really know what will happen with technology that will allow perhaps the information and the pictures that we're sharing to be able to be used in ways that we can't even imagine. And so, so that's kind of the second thing that we have to think about. We have to think about those known risks and we have to think about those mm-hmm. unknown risks, right? Right. Would that be like location imprinting and the geotags and things like that? Exactly. Oh, and, and things that I can't even tell you because I can't even right. imagine yet. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> all, the, the all the things. Like they look at a face and they can all of a sudden tell something about a person. I don't know. I mean, these are just right. like random things right. that we just don't know yet. We just don't know. And all the facial recognition mm-hmm. changes just in the last two months I've seen. I've read a lot about facial recognition because of the Black Lives Matters movement and different issues there. And I'm like, wow, there is so much going on that I didn't know about. Like, I didn't know that my digital doorbell was a bigger thing than just me not knowing, not wanting to get off the couch. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's the second piece. What do we not know yet? Um, and, and I call this category the tangible harms. Um, the third tangible harm that I talk about um, is something really scary that parents don't like to think about, but the idea of morphed child pornography. Um, we talk a lot about deep fakes and the idea that yep. images can be manipulated. Um, but what we don't talk about a lot is that there is a market to manipulate images of kids. And um, I wrote an entire paper kind of exploring that risk and kind of like this you know, I say sharenting in quotation marks because that's not my favorite word, but right. it's kind of people know what the word sharenting means. Kind of like how my sharenting work came about because I realized no one else was doing this work. Yep. My research on morphed child pornography also came about because um, a Canadian journalist had reached out to me about this risk. And I realized that she was reaching out to me because there was no one else studying this. And so wow. I, I started to look at it and, and, it's a it's a real issue that um, you know there have been cases where innocent images of kids. There's a case from like a camp where a camp, so a camp photographer had taken the pictures back and turned them into pornography. Um, and wow. there, And there's a whole area of law where, like under federal law, if you were to take an innocent innocent in- image of a child and morph it with a sexual body of an adult, that that would be considered child pornography, and the person could be charged with a crime. But the problem is, is that a lot of state laws have not been updated with the technology. So like I live in Florida, that type of image is still not considered child pornography here. Wow. But the child. Yeah, I don't even know what would be considered in my state. I've moved so (laughs) often that that would be hard to keep up with. Like, I just assume that they're ready for for this. Right. We just And they're not. And they're not. And they're not. (laughs) And so and so that goes in that tangible harms bucket. And each of these tangible harms, it's kind of hard to weigh how big of a risk it is because there's so many unknowns. But parents need to know that these these issues do exist, right? They need to mm-hmm. they need to start thinking about it. Um, and then the other side of it, and the the part that I think we know has an impact right now mm-hmm. and affects each of us, are the intangible harms and the idea yep. of kids not having um, the ability to speak out about what their digital footprint is going to look like. Yep. Our kids have a digital footprint long before they have their first email account. Um, a study from AVP yeah. Security said that 92% of two-year-olds already have an online presence. That was a few years ago. Wow. It's probably even more. <laughs> I'm sure. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. Like, I made my kids' email address as soon as we picked out their name. Yeah. Like, I was like, oh, we have to reserve it. <laughs> 
So unlike the tangible harms where it's like, we know what would happen. Like, God forbid your child's information was stolen. We know that they would become a victim of identity theft. In the intangible harms category, it's not so clear. Like, is there a harm with the fact that your child has an internet presence? Maybe, maybe not, right? It, it's not as clear. And, um, but what I think we, we do know is that kids value, kids um, benefit by being heard and kids mm-hmm. benefit by being understood. And so when we share, if we can think about how our child would feel about it now, you know, and mm-hmm. that conversation looks very different for a four-year-old versus a 14-year-old, you know, my four-year-old. Absolutely. My four-year-old. I was going to say, are you asking your four-year-old, like, when do you start asking this? So I think we probably started talking about it when my kids were five or six, but okay. the conversation is really different. When they're yeah. younger, the conversation is, are you proud of that moment? Um, is that something that you want me to share with grandma and grandpa? Um, can I show your teacher that picture? And the answers that you get from that can guide you to understand what your child might feel. Um, you ask questions in a developmentally appropriate manner. So for the absolutely a fourteen year old, it's going to be a far different conversation. Mm-hmm. But the, not only are we asking, we're also thinking, how will this child feel when they come of age and are able to appreciate the digital identity that was left in childhood's wake? So that four year old, might think it's totally cute to share a picture of the first time, I guess maybe let's, let's call it a three-year-old, the first time they use the potty, right? Um, right. You know, my three-year-old was really proud when that happened, right? Uh-huh. And she would have been happy with everybody knowing about it at age three. At age 13 or 23, that's not something she's going to be so happy about. So, nope. we, so we need to think about how do our kids feel about us sharing it now and how will they feel about it when they find out we share about it, shared about it years into the future. When they look back on our newsfeed, will they be happy with the disclosures we made for them? Right. I keep thinking that we've had my husband's grandfather died and we had to shut off his Facebook account and we were going through his things. And I was like, what will my kids think of if they scroll through my posts from early motherhood? Like, Mm-hmm. Is what I'm sharing something that I'm going to be happy with? Like, did I treat it like a diary ranting? Or is this like actually good things that I should have shared? Yeah. Yeah. And and I can't answer that for you. And you can't answer I don't know. Either. I know. Right? <laughs> That's like the hard part. I was like, I'm reading it again. Like I went through when the memories pop up on that. And I'm like, oh, should I delete this now? Or do I just let it stand for a little bit longer? I don't know. I don't know. And that's the thing is that my book gives you some ideas about how to make those decisions. Yeah. But it's not going to put my <laughs> my way of doing it into your head. What it is going to say is we need to be well more well-informed. We need to understand the data. We need to understand the risks and, and hopefully be able to make better decisions. So when when we think about it, we can think about how our kids will feel. And we can look at the data. Mm -hmm. We can look at the data that shows us how kids feel at various ages about the information that's shared about them. Um, We can look at and understand the risks of online sharing, of Mm oversharing. We could also look at what can we do as a society and as moms and dads that can give us the benefit that we get by sharing that middle of the night post that my baby won't go to sleep with yep. the risk of them discovering that you were filled with motherhood rage when you know, the kids were little, <laughs> right? right? And, and there are things we can do. Um, we can review our posts regularly and try to clean up the digital mm-hmm. data that's been left behind. 
um, we can look into the idea of a right to be forgotten as a society that would give kids the right to delete information that was shared about them later. Um, We can avoid using our kids' names when we share certain things so that if technology advances in a way where the information that we shared attached to, you know, little Joey's name, for example, they're not going to get all of those results. You know, imagine a child. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I keep thinking about this as you're, as we have kids that go off to apply to college, like when colleges, we know that colleges have used online social media and internet searches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like does my sharing of them impact that? And it can. Um, my oldest, um, uh, I was pregnant with a lot of other women at the time, and we all realized mm-hmm. that eating shrimp quesadillas helped us go into labor. And <laughs> like four out of six of us had babies 24 hours after eating shrimp quesadillas from this one restaurant. And it was pretty cool as a you know 23-year-old, 24-year-old mom. I was yeah. really excited about this. And the newspaper did a story, and they took a picture of all of us. And when you search my son's name, the first thing that comes up is that birth story and that picture, right? I didn't mean to like affect his digital footprint then. Yeah. But there's a good chance that the information that we share online about our kids will be, will come up higher in search results than the information that they share about themselves later. And so as a society, we need to think about, is that okay should we find ways to, to make that not happen? I mean, should he be able to, you know, click a button and Google take that off of the search result? And in my book, I explore that and I talk about how we could do that and how the laws could change. Um, but it, it's really interesting. There, it's so interesting. There's, it's amazing how we spend so much time focusing on what our kids are doing online and spend so little time focusing on what we are doing. Yeah. I I fully agree. I think that when we pause and really focus on what we're doing, then we can remember how to teach our kids to be better in that platform. But also we can have a little bit more grace and understand like why they do some of the things they do online that drive us crazy, Mm -hmm. like, like YouTube videos and I, of course, go to podcasts to find experts, but my kids go to YouTube to find experts that they look up to on different subject areas. And it's so interesting um, how we both find the people we need to learn from. Right, right. Um, Since COVID, I've been really finding that um, there have been daily reminders of the power of social media. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that being someone who's spent a lot of time researching, sharing um, I've risked giving my oldest the impression that it's not such a good thing to share, but I'm reminded now how much, how many benefits come when we share. Um, for him, like the best example was, uh, he was, he experienced anti-Semitism at school and I was really wanting to like speak out to the community, but I also knew that if I did, I would be telling his story and does he really want that to be out? And, um, And in the end, he decided he wanted to share it and he got a lot of support and he was able to convince the school board to, you know, have a anti-Semitism policy. And he saw that because he opened up on social media that he was able to effectuate change. Um, And I think we've seen that over the last few months with um, Mm -hmm. with Black Lives Matter movement and people speaking up and, and saying that this is wrong. 
And, and so I think there's a lesson to be that we can teach our kids also about the power of social media in, in advocacy, especially when we are having to find ways to advocate from our living rooms. The whole being not able to gather and the risk of gathering and COVID has changed how everyone uses social media, I think. I think initially, like those first couple weeks, everyone jumped on. Like if you jumped onto Facebook or Instagram, like everyone was going live all the time. Like we were just lonely and using the tools that we had. And then the deaths of Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and all the protests about Black Lives Matter, like those have been really big discussions in my house with a 12 and 13 year old. And I'm glad that my kids didn't see some of the videos that were shared, but I know that those videos were powerful too to create change. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. But I'm glad that I'm glad that advocacy is happening because people are aware. Right. And that only happens because people shared. They were brave enough and vulnerable enough. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to be brave and vulnerable. And we have to model how to do that for our kids. We have to show them so that, you know, it's it I think that when we have little kids, we don't realize how quickly social media is going to take over their lives. I mean not take over their lives. That's probably right. strong of a word, but become a big power of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, another surprising thing that I, I realized as I was doing my work, I think I always knew it, but I didn't, it didn't come to the forefront until I was, my son was turning 13 and there was a lot happening with the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, yep. which is the law that, um, that prohibits companies from collecting information about minors, um, advertising to minors, um, yep. you know, and, and, and it gives our younger kids some protection when they're on certain websites that mm -hmm. the website operator has to act in a certain way. Those rules stop applying to kids when they turn 13. Wow. And that's, that's powerful to know. Yeah. 13 years old, there's no protections. And it's not a coincidence that at 13 is when kids can legally get on Instagram and Facebook right. and all these other platforms. Um, and so you have this like switch that comes on. Like when you're learning how to drive, there's like a learner's permit year, right? There's mm -hmm. a test that you take. There's no learner's permit year when it comes to social media. It's you're not allowed to use it. And there's a million protections for you. And then you are allowed to use it. And there's none. And so what do we do in that space is what is so important. So we need a permit year for social media. Year. Yeah, we need a permit year. What would that look like? Do you have any tangible tips for that? Sure. Um, and I don't know that it would definitely be a year. I mean, I'd like to think that even with my nine-year-old, we're already starting those things, right. right? I think that my seven-year-old is hearing conversations that his sisters didn't hear at seven mm -hmm. just because he's around kids that are dabbling a little bit more. Especially with COVID shutting down, right? And people moving on to Google Classroom and then Google Chats became a huge thing in my house all of a sudden. Right. And so the young, <laughs> these younger kids who can't developmentally conceptualize what it means to have a digital footprint, who can't conceptualize mm -hmm. that if they're on, you know, Facebook Kids Messenger and they say something, that they're not just saying it to the person that they're messaging with. They're saying it to anyone who sees that. And you know, it, 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 it's a hard thing to kind of wrap your head around 
when you're 13. I don't think most grownups wrap their head around that. Yeah. Right. Like people get fired for things that they don't realize that they can get fired for because of social media. So for, for us, some of the ways that, that we bring it into the house, um, is that I treat my Facebook feed not as my social media account, but as my family's social media account. And so when I want to share something, you know, I mentioned earlier that I talk to the kids about mm-hmm. it before I share it, but I don't just share it and then forget about them and let them forget that I asked the question. If I decide that it's worth sharing, then I strategically pick times to sit the computer up on the, the counter or, you know, sit next to my son on the couch with my phone and let them read the feedback that they're getting. Let them see that, you know, uncle so-and-so said they were adorable and let the, you know, let them see that, you know, so-and-so said it was a great home run or, or whatever the comments are so that they can start to appreciate what happens when something is put out there, how people are seeing it and how people are responding. Mm-hmm. And then I also try to have the kids respond to those individuals as well. So, um, you know, that looks different with my youngest versus my middle, but um, I really try to engage them in the process. And and some might say that's a lot of work and it certainly slows down my sharing sometimes because I don't want to do that work. But I feel like if you're going to share, you kind of have to use it as an opportunity to do that. So, so that's one one thing. I really like that. That feels like bumpers in the bowling alley. Like it gives you like this easy framework of like, okay, if we're going to share. We talked about it, but I want you to experience what sharing means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does it mean? And, and, you know, I don't know about you and, you know, it's not something I'm proud of, but I have a tendency that when I post something, I want to see the reactions that I get from it. Like, oh, absolutely. Know, like, right. Like the it. thumbs yeah. up, the hearts. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately. Right. Like, since we got on there, we are all hitting for that dopamine of like, did people like me? Am I seen? Yes. And so I remind myself, and I have to remind myself because I wouldn't do it if I wasn't trying to be conscious of it, that every time I'm picking up the phone to look at it, I'm taking myself out of the moment that I'm in with my child. And so I try really hard to to wait and sit down at a certain time when I can absorb all of that feedback alongside that child and also kind of explain to that child that, you know, I really was, you know, when I shared it, people look at this person said something a minute after I shared it. And this person said something two minutes after we say it, but we're not looking at it until right now. And why? Um, and then I also let them see me screw up. Um, one of the, I mean, I screw up a lot, even, even writing this book, I still screw up. Um, that's really good to hear though, because we all, you take a book author and you're like, they must know the way they have this map for me now, but to know that you're still messing up is relieving. I am messing up. Um, today I, um, you know, my, my son, um, had his first band practice since, uh, COVID and it was, you know, they did it really well and they wore masks and they were outside and there were some great pictures taken. And so, um, we started earlier today having a conversation as to should we share these and do you want to share them and what are the benefits? Mm-hmm. And, and we were thoughtful about the purpose of sharing them. We decided to share them. Um, and then later on, people were starting to kind of get into little bickering things on my Facebook feed. And yeah, there's uh, a lot of disagreements about a lot of things yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, and, and, and he's, he's, he's going to ninth grade, so he, he could see it. He understood what was happening and why. And I said, you know, 
I just really don't want my blood pressure to be rising about this. I kind of want to step away from these conversations. So um, let's go ahead and switch this from something we've shared with all of our friends to something that we share with a much smaller audience. And one of the things that I've done on Facebook is um, I have a lot of people that I know on my Facebook friend list, Mm -hmm. but I have a much smaller group of people that are on my close friend list. And so we changed the privacy setting to the close friend list. And then it was still there. If I want, you know, Mm -hmm. a year from now, if the Facebook memory comes back, I'll enjoy it. Um, There are good friends that I value what they have to say. I value what everyone has to say. I just don't have the bandwidth to process it all, all the time. And so there's a lot of emotional energy that goes into social media. That's completely invisible until you're in one of those situations where you're like, what do I do? I don't want to keep thinking about this and keep fueling this. Mm -hmm. And so I changed it and, and I changed the setting and, and I think it was, I hope it was a good lesson because I I will screw up again, but I hope that he kind of, kind of, ran the gamut of emotions that I ran so that he has some things to pull from when he's doing it on his own. Um, You know, I would I put into, you know, teaching my kids about, you know, how to be good digital citizens would pay off. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm also the first generation doing this. Um, Right. But there, there, there is a lot of research out there. And, um, and I hope that readers of my book will absorb all the research that I've absorbed and will bring this to the forefront of child rearing conversations. So when moms or dads or aunts and uncles get together to talk about why they chose to go organic or chose not to, or why cry it out works for their family, but doesn't work for another family, that another conversation that they're having is how do, how do you share as a family? What have you learned? Let me tell you what I've learned and let's evolve this past good or bad. And let's really get into the the substance of it and, and, and carve a conscious path forward. I think that's a really beautiful gift. If your book can do that and help us all with that, to create those conversations, to allow a framework for those conversations to happen, because I don't think that I've had as honest of a conversation I need to with some of my family members or friends about what I feel comfortable with being shared about my kids. And probably what they feel comfortable sharing because we're different families. So we're going to have different views. Um, there's um there's a chapter in the book about how to deal with outside influences. So how do you deal with schools asking permission to share grandparents asking permission to share? Um, and there are some ways that we can understand what our rights are as parents, but also understand what rights we don't have, which right, which ideas, um, that we think we should have control over with our kids. We might think that we should be able to stop someone from publishing a picture that's taken of our kid in the middle of the street, but we might not have a right to do it. But we can set a moral framework and kind of like a, a social contract with the organizations that we're with. So that even if we're not in a place where there's um, where there are clear rules, we can start mm-hmm. to create some. Um, there's um, And there's so much of it that is, is just not being talked about and not... Um, we're kind of laughing off some issues that are pretty serious. Um, there was a video, you might've seen it about a year or two ago of a little child, a little girl who was terrified by the Easter bunny at a daycare. And the child was like freaking out by this Easter bunny. And the video went viral. I mean, like tons of people who you and I would think are perfectly awesome, nice, normal people were sharing this mm-hmm. video thinking it was the funniest thing ever. 
But um, I think Jimmy Kimmel even shared the video. But behind the scenes, the parents were so upset that this video had gotten out about their kids um, or about their child. You know, they had signed something that said that things shouldn't be shared about their kids online. But even if they hadn't signed it, I mean, if that was your kid, would you want them to be the butt of a public joke? And I... And it's it, so hard. I would not want photos like that shared of me. Yeah. I think that it's easier when the child is not our own or somebody that we know to think of them as an entertainment figure. But on social media, so many of those images are not people who are out there to be entertainment figures. Um, there's, a, there's a picture that went around after Thanksgiving a few years ago of a very, very chubby two-year-old kind of smiling and the butt was showing and it was like the kid like looking over the side uh-huh. and, and someone had turned that picture into a meme and it said, when you overeat for the holidays. <sighs> and when I saw it, because a lot of my friends had shared it, I was really taken aback. First, it had nudity in it, which I think is a really big tangible no-no of what you should not do when it comes to sharing pictures of your kids. But also, I worried how would that child feel if one day they learned they were such the, you know, pardon me. That they were literally a meme? Yeah, they were a public joke, right? Like, Yeah. No, I can't imagine if my kid was turned into a meme. Like, I even know, like, the thumbs up kid. Like, there's this generic Mm -hmm. green t-shirt boy that I know was shared without really permission around. And any of that, good or bad, would feel so uncomfortable. Yeah. And a lot of those kids aren't happy about it. And there have been some articles that come back and ask them how they felt about it later. Um, and a lo- those images, you can do a reverse Google image search to see yep. how many times these pictures have been shared. So if, if you and I are Facebook friends and one of us hasn't thought through these issues and the other one has, and I post something that you have a random idea about how it could be a meme, there's there are ethical rules that stop you from stealing the picture. And maybe there are some legal ways that you can get that picture back. But the reality is, is you're not going to be able to get any sort of peace of mind until the damage is already done. There is so much to talk about and so much to think about. And I can't wait for parents to read your book. There is just so much here. And I will probably have to invite you back on because I think around the holiday season, this would be a really good conversation to have again about before you see the relatives, how do you prepare for conversation that you might be uncomfortable having because you don't know how to start them? Right. Well, hopefully the book will give folks good conversation starters, um, good uh, um, substance for their arguments, um, and good things to, to talk about. You know, this, this, came, this, this project came from a genesis of self-reflection. Um, I sit side by side with the parents who are trying to figure this out. Um, I've just devoted six years of my working life to, to researching it. And so yeah. this book is a culmination of all of that research from the legal, the medical, the ethical, the parenting perspective, um, all rolled into one. And I hope that your readers really enjoy it. Yeah, I really appreciate all of those roles rolled into one. Like I've read other things about kids online with digital and I'm like, yeah, but it's not a mom. Like... <laughs> My grandma and grandpa live states away. Like, how do I share these things with people? So I appreciate that it's a mom writing this book and it's a mom that has all this experience because I think that adds to the context so richly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me tonight. It was really good to talk to you. So every episode ends with a self-care task and a play idea. Are you comfortable sharing that? Sure, absolutely. (laughs) I would love to. Okay. 
So that's one of the big takeaways of my podcast is I want every mom leaving this having a way to just pause and reflect about their life and what's amazing about it. And self-care is more than just hygiene. So what is your idea? So I love to, um, I love to be able to look up at the trees. And I know that that sounds kind of silly, but there's so much value in really kind of detaching from all of our worldly problems and just kind of watching the way the wind blows. Um, And so I find that these days with COVID, sometimes that simply happens at like a red light on one of the very few errands that I get to run out of the house. And I just Mm -hmm. look up and I'm just like, the kids are at home with their dad and it's quiet. And I just Mm -hmm. see the the vastness and the beauty of it all. Um, other times it's, you know, on a walk with a podcast, you know, I might be listening yeah. to you in my ear and then like just taking it all in and looking up. So, yeah. so I, I would say that's probably the biggest thing for self-care right now for me is when I can detach from my worldly stress and connect with nature. That's a really good one. I definitely appreciate that. And I'm going to be trying it this week. So what about play ideas? How are you pausing to connect and play and slow down in that way? Silliness, I would say. I would say silliness is kind of the, the key for me with that. Um, we're all so, um, in my house, we're pretty tense and we're pretty stressed. Um, <laughs> yep. I don't know if it's everyone's house, but um, two working parents and three kids trying to figure out if they're in school next month or not. And um, and sometimes it's just being silly, like, like tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my daughter was watching a TV show. I had just whipped up dinner together for her, but I had also spent a lot of the day listening to our school board decide whether they were going to open or not. And so, like, my stress level was at, like, a nine. She didn't want to come eat dinner. And um, so instead, I, you know, picked her up and started tickling her and carried her upside down to the to the kitchen table. And we were all laughing and having fun and and just kind of separating from the logi- the logical part of parenting and connecting yeah. with um, kind of the, the deeper joy that exists somewhere underneath the surface sometimes. Yeah, the novelty. We sang an opera today to get mm-hmm. everyone to the table. Yeah. I was like, come on, guys. Okay, I'm just going to start singing. <laughs> Maybe if I sing in a really deep baritone, I can let off some steam. Yeah, I think it helps. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a tough time. And if we it is. let off the steam, like you said, is, is really helpful for everybody. And I think it's really helpful to know that other parents are feeling this same level. Mm-hmm. So thanks for telling us that silliness is what's helping right now. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, Thank you. where can they find you online? Should they just read your book or where should we direct people to, Stacey? So I would love it if they would read my book and probably the easiest way to find it would be, um, I mean, Amazon's really easily growing uh-huh. up shared Stacy Steinberg, you know, make sure you type in my name. Cause there are some other books that are called growing yep. up other things, but, um, you could also go to growingupshared.com and that's my website. So that would be a nice, easy way to get to me also. And there's links to my articles and, uh, to this book right there. Awesome. Um, you could find me on Twitter um, for more of my academic spin on uh-huh. things um, at SG Steinberg. Um, and I do have a Facebook page growing up shared, but um, it's not super active just yet. So yeah. I would say read the book and then write to me. Tell me if you liked it. Tell me what you thought about it. I want to help you 
be part of this conversation and you can help me by by giving me some ideas too. Well, thank you so much. I hope people do write you. This conversation gave me a lot to think about and talk about with my kids and with my spouse and with my family and friends. Please go look at my Instagram feed next week. If you're listening to this live, the first week of August in 2020, I will be giving away, I will have a contest for a copy of Stacy's book, Growing Up Shared. So join in the conversation and we can talk about how you're having the conversations with your kids about sharing and consent to share. Thanks for being here. You are exactly the right mom for your kids and your kids are the right kids for you. You are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you for loving them so much and loving yourself and taking the time to listen. Have a great day. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.